Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. We are continuing our run through mysteries and this time around we're doing a bit of a response to actually some fan feedback that I got separately. Is that, you know, we kind of offering Agatha Christie herself as a bit of a response to the Agatha Awards, but more than a couple people pointed out that it wasn't a fair comparison with And Then There Were None. Then There Were None is a full-length story and has time to set it up. Appropriately, maybe a little element coincidentally, but I'll take credit for it, we have decided to aggressively respond to that criticism by doing a proper Agatha Christie short story this time around. This is a short story, by any definition, to a degree that even surprised me, given how long it's been since I read it. But it is not shorter than some of the, the Agatha Christie <laughs> Awards short stories. No. But, but. We, we, we are doing the 1925 short story, The Witness for the Prosecution, originally published under the decidedly inferior name, Traitor's Hands. This was early Agatha Christie. She wasn't as good with the whole naming thing at this time. She got better over time. <laughs> this was a full 14 years before then, then we're none. We're much earlier in her career. It's between her fourth and fifth novel when she wrote this. And it has always been a personal favorite of mine. But before we go into everybody else's reviews and a bit of the internet, Sarah, I just saw you take a drink of what I'm assuming will be your drink recommendation this time around. What would you recommend as a pairing for this particular story? Yes, uh, so for Witness for the Prosecution, um, I have a drink called The Prosecutor. Perfect. What is it? <laughs> so um, this is actually, and it is, it is kind of getting into spring and warmer weather while we were we are doing this recording. So it is um, perhaps the ideal drink for me at this time of year. It is um, an ounce and a half of rye whiskey with half an ounce of. Uh, it's supposed to be yellow yellow chartreuse. We've been over this before on the podcast. I can only get green chartreuse where I am, um, so it is it is green chartreuse. Uh, an, a, a half an ounce of elderflower liqueur and a half an ounce of lemon juice. Um, shaken, served in a chilled glass. Very clearly, the instructions told me to do this without garnish. So we are garnishless in this moment. Um, and, you know, it is honestly delightful. I mean, I think that normally this flavor combination I would I would do with in a gin drink with gin. Um but with the rye whiskey, it gives it a little bit more complexity in the kind of undertones, a little bit more um, kind of dankness in there, which I, I really appreciate, especially with the, the brightness of the elderflower and the lemon. It is a delightful drink to go with a delightful story. So it's a perfect mixing of flavors to match mixing of themes in this story. Mm -hmm. It's it's a fun drawing together of, you know, proper rye whiskey that the judge is probably drinking below his bench <laughs> while at the same time... A few other elements of both sweetness and possibly something darker in there, too. Mm -hmm. So surprisingly well-rounded with a number of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. Yes. Well, while we sip our respective drinks, none of us having one quite as good as yours, did you look up a few one-star reviews this time around for people that may not have appreciated this story as much as we might have? I did, I did go to Goodreads for this again. Um, however, I will say not unlike, and then there were none. The overall rating of this story was incredibly high. I did go like specifically to only the short story, not the short story as the mm -hmm. title story of a collection of other short stories. Yeah, um, sure. And I mean, the overall rating was again above a four, which is stellar. stellar. Mm -hmm. And I did not get far enough in the ratings to really get below. There were no outrageous one-star reviews for me to bring to you, at least in in what I got to. There were a, a hundred percent disagree. <laughs> well, you you can do us. You're completely wrong because there is a one-star review that says didn't enjoy as much as other Poirot books. <laughs> what? That is the most outrageous one-star review, and it is my favorite I did not get of all time now. I did not get that far, but thank you for taking us there, BJ. <laughs> what do you have I, for I us? I only got as far as the two- and three-star reviews, and I pulled out two, not because they are particularly outrageous, but because I think that they are interesting in... So one of them is interesting in the context of us reading mystery short stories and like what they are able to do in the constraints allowed to a short story. Mm -hmm. The other of which is um, the idea of reading a short story that is, and, th and this came up in a lot of reviews, um, but the idea of reading a short story that was revolutionary for the time it was written as a 21st century reader um, and mm. like what that does to the reading experience. So, which is like not outrageous, but it is an interesting point, I think. 
and we don't have to go through that specific review, but I think it's something that we can talk about a little bit. Um, like, what does it mean? Okay, set us up. So, the the actual kind of outrageous, I guess, three-star review that I want to read you. <laughs> Dear God, <laughs> the scorn. Is um, by just someone named Jennifer on Goodreads. Who uh, has said, I gotta say, Miss Christie is not in her best form writing short fiction. I feel like she forces the ending. Like, what was I supposed to pick up on? How was I supposed to figure out, uh, figure this out along with the defense attorney? She does much better work in her long-form books. That said, um, this still has her usual flair and writing style. So if you're looking for bite-sized Christie, then maybe this would be for you. I can only assume the play is the superior version. I have not seen the play. I have questions about the play. But I do think it's interesting that the very first part of this review is actually not unlike some of the things that we were saying about the other <laughs> Agatha Christie Awards, which makes me wonder just about the the inherent limitations of writing a short-form mystery, mm-hmm. be it cozy or otherwise. Um, yeah. Because, like, of course it has I, to be truncated. Right. And, it, like, it has to be truncated, and I think people are conflating short stories and novellas Mm, mm -hmm. and that a short story like it really needs to be short like you can put it in with a bunch of other short stories and it's it's not like a compendium like massive textbook it's it's still like a normal size book if you put 10 20 of them together Mm -hmm. as opposed to like maybe you put a couple of novellas together or like a book Mm -hmm. um I actually and... really like that this person, despite the fact that they were not like super enthused about this being a short story, I mm-hmm. like that they described it as bite-sized Christie. That feels right mm-hmm. to me. Yes. Yeah. This feels like it is hitting the high notes of a longer story, and just in terms of how it is how it is structured. There's a, several moments of where she is just purposely yada yadding to get to the next point, mm-hmm. and that's one yeah. thing the play goes into a lot more detail about. Like for example, we see basically no courtroom testimony in this. It is all Mm -hmm. just a very brief, often a sentence or a paragraph description of what occurred. In the play, we see it all. Mm -hmm. It is all drawn out. And that adds a different climax to the story in some ways because we get to see the actual moment of the reveals in the stand, the breaking down of testimony, the surprises that occur. Mm -hmm. But it inherently changes the focus. Here, Mm -hmm. it is much more plot-focused and plot-point-focused because it has to be for the sake of moving along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's more character interactions rather than scene interactions. Sure. Yes. Um, the, the just second trend in reviews that I wanted to bring up because I think that we'll we'll kind of get there is the idea that like a lot of Agatha Christie stories are in in many ways the first of their kind um, and mm-hmm. were in fact revolutionary when they were published. They have, as evidenced by the Agatha Awards, sprung a cottage industry of. <laughs> um, other mysteries that are perhaps cribbing off of those, but it is, you know, mm-hmm. it was like legitimately surprising to me how many of the reviews, even if they were like ultimately good reviews, referenced the idea that this might have been like shocking when it was first published, mm-hmm. but a 21st century audience has seen this a million times before. Um, you you can't divorce it from that original context, mm-hmm. though. You can't you can't forget. You can't just say, oh, Shakespeare, somebody's done that better. <laughs> he literally invented the damn language. Yes. There's a certain amount of credit that has to go into it. And even mm-hmm. then, even if something has been to a certain degree hackneyed, often the original version is so delightfully distilled, mm-hmm. is, so del- it is so removed from all the kind of excessive baggage and fluff that people assign to it to try to be new, that I in some ways appreciate it more so much that it's come after that it's been trying to copy it. Well, and that's, and we're going to yeah. get to the recap here in a second, but like my just overall impression of this story, if I were going to kind of distill it into a word, is that this reading experience feels pure. Mm -hmm. That this is Mm -hmm. the story. This is the text that people go to when they are going to write this kind of whatever, twisted twist at the end story. This is is it. And it doesn't have any of that fluff or baggage attached to it. Um, well, I feel like that given the tw- given the twists we see in the story, a certain measure of a recap would be appropriate, uh, j- just to set up and explain yes. as well as discuss mm-hmm. some of the some of the differences in adaptations. But Before we do that, I do want to share the other glorious bad review that <laughs> we have as as Please. the bookend yes. to the first one because 
Um, is someone complaining it, about it, it not being Miss Marple? No. <laughs> Two stars. It's better than Edgar Allan Poe, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. What? I mean, they're both mystery writers, but sure, that seems like it's some unnecessary shade, really. <laughs> just insane. That's absolutely And it's also nuts. like two stars. I, it, this is the best <laughs> one-star review for all of Edgar Allan Poe's work, apparently. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, uh, I'd, I'd say it's a fair summary of Agatha Christie's works that she likes to begin to a certain degree in media rest. Mm-hmm. This may be one of her most aggressive. We, we don't just begin middle of the story. We begin middle conversation mm-hmm. of when this one begins. Mm-hmm. Of we, we are in the office of a solicitor, which is a kind of a British term for a general advocate's attorney, not, not the one that's actually directly try your case in court. More like your personal attorney rather than your, your, your court trial attorney. Mm-hmm. By the name of Mr. Mahern, who is... Um, I think he's actually in jail. I think he's dealing with a person who's in custody of where he's mm-hmm. interviewing his potential client, Leonard Vol, who is accused of murder of a Mrs. French or Miss French. The evidence against him is rather circumstantial, but there's a fair bit of it still of where he appears to have formed a bit of a relationship with this elderly woman who ultimately just immediately kind of gravitated towards him. He claims this was not intentional. It was just circumstance by which he met her in the street. He claims that he had no knowledge or any way that uh, she had written him as her sole beneficiary in her will. And that claims that she, you know, reached out to him to seek general legal advice, general business advice, because she was confused about the details. A lot of this not necessarily squaring with some of the other testimony that the prosecution has from, I believe it's her... Basically um, everybody else that she was sharp as a, as a whip and... and you know, happily handling all of her affairs for many, many years and... Uh, had, to- had told him that she was going to pick him as her beneficiary in the will. And a lot mm-hmm. of other things that just undermine kind of the background of his testimony and potential motive for why he was there. He also is ca- a bit caught off guard when he's told that, you know, this the evidence of a break-in seems obviously planted. That the, the a forced open window is not clear. Very few items were actually stolen. And we have a testimony from her maid that there was a male caller there that she was talking with. Not sure who the male caller was, but they were sitting comfortably talking, which doesn't suggest a burglar. So a lot comes down to, okay, none of this directly implicates you, but you've got a clear motive and you have the means of getting in. Where, who can vouch for where you were at this given hour? And the one person that he believes will guarantee his testimony is that of his wife, Romaine who was there when he got home at the hour that he mm-hmm. said was home, which means he couldn't have been involved in the murder. And if you just speak with her, everything will be fine. And if like, we wait were... a minute, this is your wife, right? Y- yeah, but her testimony is going to be enough, right? <laughs> sure. Mr. Mayhern's kind of politely sitting through this like, yeah, that's going to be compelling testimony. Sure. Okay. That's what I got. <laughs> but his general impression of Vol was that he believes him, almost believes him in spite of himself. And mm-hmm. is somewhat motivated to represent mm-hmm. him because of that, even if he thinks the case is a bit flimsy. I, f- I feel like the uh, we're supposed to take away that he's kind of an unassuming shlemiel. Like, you know, he's yeah. he's not... Bit of a man-child, maybe. Yeah. In, in over um, his head. Mm-hmm. Inherently you know, sympathetic. You know, somebody, only a doddering old lady would have looked at this man and been like, he's competent. Everybody else is like... <laughs> Well, and, and I, could we I, okay. get a Mrs. A, a Mrs. Birdsong and what's his face from the Rainmaker comparison? Yes. In this <laughs> and I love the inherent sexism we see from Mr. Mayer and throughout all the story of him and try to interpret and process the fl- kind of flimsy cover story for Vol, of mm-hmm. where you know he, he hears from him saying, "Oh, she asked me about her financials." I'm like, well, she was a very experienced businesswoman, and you know, why would she even ask you that? I, I, I don't know. Maybe she just liked me. And his prostate explanation is. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, she, she she was doing a classic woman routine and pretending to be incompetent to get the man to draw to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally with yeah. that. Um, but but also a very interesting thing for the twenties. I feel like it's where a, this older lady is basically like, she's an I'm going to cougar this this young dude, and this is how I'm going to do it. No one is judging really her with respect to that at all. It's like, yeah, she was doing that. <laughs> what were your motivations in terms of being there? Uh, but he goes to talk to Romain Vol, and it's a very interesting conversation of what we ultimately learn is two people not necessarily having the same conversation. Mm-hmm. 
of where his first impressions of her are primarily that she is foreign, that she is beautiful, and that she is disconcerting. Mm -hmm. That she has a quietness to her, a constant observing, observation kind of sense around her that puts him off. Mm -hmm. And she originally just quietly takes in as if she's being almost told for the first time what had happened, that, you know, your husband's being accused of murder. Okay. Yes, yes, I get uh, you. Uh-huh. Need, and, and she keeps pushing for the details. She keeps pushing, what do you want me to say? Tell me more, tell, tell me, me more. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crossover moment right there. <laughs> Where were the details? When did this occur? What time is it? And he wants me to say what? Does he have any other witnesses that will support him? And it's like, and, and in this questioning, it's, wait, it's like, wait a minute, why, why is his only witness asking me what i'm supposed to say on the stand like who's this being is... interviewed here yeah. mm. he's like uh okay well you know she's in an emotional state fine and the moment he tells her that no i don't have any other witnesses i don't think anybody else is really going to speak for him her personality shifts mm-hmm. as she as we later learn adopts a mask mm-hmm. a mask that she needs him to believe of suddenly the the somewhat soft-spoken but nice and friendly enough but very inquisitive woman becomes a banshee she mm-hmm. becomes a, a woman's scorn for reasons that she can't disclose mm-hmm. that now not only I was never his wife i was you know i was sort of his lover and and there are all these problems in our relationship and yes. he's running off with an older rich lady and and what would i tell you if i know that he did it if he came back and threatened me with blood on his coat what would you feel if i told you that and mm-hmm. with just almost a certain measure of glee that she finally gets to cook his goose. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Mayor does not know how to process this. <laughs> no, he backs this up not, real fast. This is not... I just mm-hmm. want wanted, wanted to take a, a slight non sequitur, and I wish there were a version where basically everybody was played by Peter Sellers. <laughs> that could be fun. Because that's essentially what happens <laughs> that we'll get to. Yes. <laughs> Good, good reference to Peter Sellers there. It's good, sure. it's good, 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 good callback. Um, he goes back really disconcerted as to what the hell is about to happen now. She essentially mm-hmm. just told him that I'm not married to him. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's not an issue of whether the Crown can compel me to testify. I want to. Yes. Yes. And I want to throw him behind mm-hmm. bars because I have it out for him and he definitely killed her. And so he, he goes back and tells his client what the hell what the hell was going on. And his client is baffled and confused particularly when he confronts him of why would she hate you it's like no reason no reason at all mm-hmm. and this is the first moments where he starts to second guess his client like mm-hmm. he knows you always he, know some, like, something something's yeah. wrong here yes but the the evidence is put forward and again most of it is still circumstantial and the actual king's counsel as it's called the actual advocate that they have at trial basically tells him you know she's here to testify she's a problem if we didn't have her We'd have a fair chance. With her, we have no chance to tell. She reveals everything that she told him that she was going to say. That mm-hmm. he didn't come back at the hour he says he came back. He came back at this later hour. He came back with blood on his coat and the murder. And um, directly told me that he murdered her. He threatened me to silence. He hid evidence. He's guilty as sin. Hang him. This is not good. This is not the evidence you'd prefer to have in a criminal defense trial. <laughs> so as a lawyer, um, what do you think his... his uh chances at, at coming out well at, at this point in his case suddenly a lot worse than they were this is not this is the directly kill evidence this is this is the smoking gun the prosecution was lacking this is someone that is directly providing evidence that he did it rather than just assessing motive and ability and circumstances so so what would you argue in terms of like eyewitness you know eyewitness testimony that's not verifiable and you just pray you, you try to provide some other rebutting testimony, and otherwise you try to undermine her credibility the exact same way as he ultimately does here. That if you can't find something factual to rebut her, you undermine her. Mm-hmm. And he gets a bit of, Mr. Mayor gets a bit of a stroke of luck, or a letter arrives at his door in delightful Cockney writing, which is fun. <laughs> they wrote it in Cockney. Um, do, saying, as someone who uh, grew up in the South, Spencer, did you ever receive any letters that were written in a southern accent no no i would read them in that if i knew who wrote it but <laughs> mm-hmm. i wouldn't have somebody you know spell it li- that's mm-hmm. i've never had somebody write me a letter that was spelled the way they would pronounce it <laughs> now there is cockney rhyming slang there are various cockney writing styles that could be at play here sure um, but no 
this is meant this is meant for the reader to read it aloud and be amused. Uh, say so basically, meet me at this address. I've got a means of cooking her goose. He goes and is greeted by what he views as a old, tattered woman, wrapped up in cloaks, badly burned, uh, or badly scarred, or, or burned mm-hmm. one of the two. I think even wearing, like, a veil or something like that, sort of to, to shroud her face as mm-hmm. well, like, really... Yeah, she, she even drops it for a second to show him why she's doing it, and she's got right. this just resoundly of burns mm-hmm. covering her. And she basically says... I've got some letters, I've got some letters, don't ask where they came from, I've just got them. Would you, would you like some evidence to enter into as Exhibit A through F, and it might help your case. Yes, this is everything of her basically pontificating on the subject of, I'm guilty as hell and I'm the villain, and doesn't feeling a villain feel good? Mm-hmm. Please give me 200 pounds, which I looked this up. How much do you guys think 200 pounds was in 1925? Oh, gosh. If you are going to adjust for inflation and then change to dollars. Conversion. Mm-hmm. Maybe 10,000. I'm going to go a little lower and say 5,000. It's converted to dollars. It's over $17,000 in cash <laughs> she's says. asking for. Purely for inflation. Not even like purchasing price value, mm-hmm. which would make it even probably more. Mm-hmm. It's a ma- he ultimately pays her like 1700 bucks in terms of just... That's still a lot of money, yeah. She gets a pretty penny off this. But these letters basically reveal that Romaine conspired with another man for the purpose of finally killing this guy. That everything Mm -hmm. they've hoped for is coming to to fruition. They can finally be together. She'll finally finally end him for all the crimes he's inflicted upon her, whatever those may be. It's perfect. It's so good that he's just kind of almost just starry-eyed when he reads them and doesn't ask any questions as he leaves. He goes back, he presents, presents this to his king's council, and they proceed to undermine all the prosecution's witnesses. They undermine the credibility, potentially, of the maid. They go into a, another person that would possibly have been there. All the evidence they mm-hmm. would have put on previously. Mm-hmm. And then they put her on the stand, and she, when confronted with the idea, you're lying, you're, you're exaggerating this, you're having your own yes. notes out for him. She, Here are the letters. We, she, have, we, we have you dead to rights. And she breaks. Mm-hmm. She breaks in the stand. She admits everything. And the jury and the judge are utterly compelled by this. They're swept away. That the key, the key witness for the prosecution is out. Kate is clearly innocent. And in a rapid fashion, Leonard Vole is found not guilty. Mm-hmm. I feel like the main evidence against her is that she is an Austrian subject, which is like the second they question. They bring that <laughs> up a lot. <laughs> they bring that up a lot. That she, it's, a, it's a key part of her that she is foreign and therefore inscrutable. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. helps that it helps factor into how Mr. Mayor doesn't have a good read on it. He's di- he doesn't yeah. like that he doesn't have a good read. I on feel it. like inscrutable is such a the is the perfect term to bring into Agatha Christie stories. No matter what you yes. are, there is always someone who is inscrutable. It's a I trope. Was say, it's a trope she practically invented. It's kind of nice that it isn't used how it's often used in in I think even Agatha Christie and other literature that sort of has become problematic. Mm. which is of the uh, Oriental. Oh, yes, the inscrutable uh, Oriental yes. is. <laughs> yes. Um, and and she, play, she plays with some tropes here when it comes to this character. She plays mm-hmm. with her as being the exotic, con- yes. the exotic mysterious, dark foreigner. Mm-hmm. She, they're working off that. It's a, key yes. part, it's a key part of her character. It's a key aspect of her character that she's conscious of and using, that re- remain herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. I think we also sort of get the, this probably would be, been a period in time where that's like the mysterious foreigner that people are not super comfortable with but maybe a little bit but they'd see around and so it's a little bit more relatable it's also pointed that she's austrian too in a post-world war one setting Mm -hmm. right that's Mm -hmm. yes yeah but i was vaguely getting it thank you she's not not only the end she's not only the other she's the enemy as of as of a few years ago but also like known in ways that someone sort of from yes. Asia who would qualify as like an or quote unquote people on the podcast can't see me doing scare quotes with my hands. Yes. Um, but like an Oriental would not not be or, you know, someone from somewhere further afield. But the sort of like known other is particularly mm-hmm. dangerous. Yeah, this this is a known this is a known other. This is another that everybody would be familiar with, but would still be in some ways just enough distant that you can't necessarily get a connection with them, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and but Mr. Mahern started to put one together because there's been aspects of this case he's felt uncomfortable with from the very start. He's a smart man, he's a capable man, and he's always felt a little bit behind the eight ball when it's come to this constant series of events spiraling kind of out of his control. But now, what was with her profession the, again? 
What'd you say? What was her profession again? I think she mm. said she was an actor. She was an actor. Huh. Mm. Oh, and my glasses. I keep on messing with my glasses. That's 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 a little interesting habit. You never realize you're doing that. She had a habit of kind of folding her hand. Who else did I see? Ah, hmm. I have a thought. Interesting. <laughs> um, and, and he's so consumed by this thought, he doesn't even really congratulate his client at the end of the case. <laughs> his, thought, his motivation is now focused, and he needs to talk... Resolution. ...to remain. Uh, mm-hmm. And I like that it's. I, I like our transition there of where they spoke later. It doesn't really matter when. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. In a, it's not in a key moment. It's not in a key place. She's living in ambiguous to the degree of what Romaine has had to suffer as a result of her testimony. Because there was always the possibility that if these letters came out, she might be convicted and put in prison for perjury. Mm-hmm. And he confronts her about it. Was you? You were the old washerwoman. I recognized your little hand gesture. Why? What was the point for this? Mm-hmm. As he realizes that she's an actress, she's an accomplished actress, and there mm-hmm. was a concerted plan from the start, from the very moment of their first conversation together, to put this in motion. And though he's put that together, he yet does not understand why. He, he's like, he thinks it's hmm? to prove the innocence. Right. That, that you know, get like or he was innocent, he but there wasn't any good way to prove it. Yes. He, I think he hopes to. He's a, yes. So... She even tells him, you know, you went into this, you know, thinking that he was innocent. Ah, yes, and yes, you knew he was innocent. Mm-hmm. You, so you mm-hmm. were willing to sacrifice to prove it. An act of true love. No. You thought he was he innocent. Was I knew he was guilty. And it, and it was such ends. a great ending. Yes. yes. And I, um, I always love that hard stop ending of where nothing further needs to be said. I, right it gives there. me chills. Yes. It gives, I, yes. I knew where it was going and it gives me chills. Yeah, and it's it's something interesting that I find I want more often of the that's the resolution. Like you don't need anything after that, and there's so many movies and and other things <laughs> including where including her own adaptation, <laughs> right? Um, like in I mean in our one of our sister podcasts, we we watch The Mist, mm-hmm. and in the original story, it ends at a spot. That, that's fine, and then in the movie, you get another ten minutes of... Resolution. Quote-unquote, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, quote-unquote resolution, but, like, you, you, you basically you have a monster movie rather than a horror mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I, Sarah has not seen the adaptation, so I want to discuss the ending here in, here in a second. Yeah. But a, a foundational question I want to go into first. This as a short story. We've discussed before mm-hmm. how hard it is as a short story. We've discussed briefly the idea of of, um, of Agatha Christie hitting kind of how she would structure this to make this work as a short story compared to novellas. Did this yeah. work as a short story for you? It, does this in some way demonstrate that a mystery short story is possible? A thousand percent. I I think it works as a short story. I think the I think that there are aspects of it that you could quibble that it's not really a mystery short story. Like it's a, it's a short story with twists Mm -hmm. and that's not definitionally a mystery short story. And so I, I think that to be fair to our requirements of a mystery in a short story, I need to say that this wasn't a great mystery. Well, I would also say, but it was a great short story with a twist. Yeah. I think, I I think that's fair. Um, I would well, also say you... that, you know, if we if we go even f- further to our discussions about the cozy mystery, mm-hmm. it, it's definitely not it's, that. It is well, not it's, that. It's a form of an amateur detective. But it is. I guess that's true. If you sort of go courtroom procedural all the way back to <laughs> detective story. Well, the subversive thing about this story and what makes it hard to categorize is that we're never certain till the end what the mystery even was. That's true. The story yes. almost op- mm-hmm. is almost openly misleading about what we think the mystery is going to be. We assume throughout most of the story the mystery is going to be why she's doing this. And that is right. what makes it a great short story. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that our frame it- of reference from the beginning is wrong. Mm-hmm. And right. th- throughout all of this, we've got a lot of evidence to work with to ultimately know where the story is going to resolve. Mm-hmm. Including mm-hmm. in terms of what, what ultimately remain uh, Vol, I say Vol, but it's actually her real last name, <laughs> is really doing here. Mm-hmm. We get from the very yeah. beginning that she's, an, that she's an actress. We get the sudden transition from her, the moment she says, you have no other witnesses? Well, then I only have one hand to play. Mm-hmm. And right. suddenly she adopts the completely different mindset until the very end of the story. Yes. 
or mm-hmm. face until the end mm-hmm. of the story. We I was gonna get say, descriptions of her hands at several times in both characters. Yep. Yeah, and this is exactly the, like this series of points that you're making, Spencer, is exactly what refutes the kind of outrageous three-star review or whatever it was. That this wasn't right. a mystery and, that you could follow along like a cozy mystery. As we go through it, there but, were tons of hints as to what was going on here. But it also takes, and I do think that this is a hallmark of the cozy mystery that we have not talked about, it takes a knowledge of the genre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it also takes a, t- a certain trust it takes a knowledge of the genre it also takes a certain trust of Agatha Christie yes because yeah. a lot of stories yes. here would have just resolved with the trial and the villain goes to jail and it doesn't necessarily go into detail or it does focus on what the motivations of the villain were mm-hmm. to, to trust her to know that there's a story within a story and that I'm just slowly revealing the light I've, gi- I've given you the full image but let me keep pulling back layers as I go and I'll trust you stick with me is a trust of the artist that you know that there's ultimately going to be a better story than it appears. And that also gets yeah. to the other sort of complaint about this that, you know, it might have been revolutionary in its time, mm-hmm. but to a modern reader, it seems sort of trope and trite. What, but. And one of the things I, I so appreciate that this did not feel the need to do padding. Yes. I so appreciate that this didn't mm-hmm. feel the need to add its own twist to the ending. This is just. That hard stop ending is so delightful, because BJ, like you said, how few films or adaptations are comfortable doing Mm -hmm. that. They feel the need to explain or justify themselves. They feel the need to go into further detail to make sure everyone's on the same page. This is confident that I've taken you on this journey, I've brought you to this point, and we're done. Mm -hmm. And I've said all I need to say. And that is so delightfully, aggressively competent that I... I really enjoyed. Um, now let's discuss how Agatha Christie herself hated that ending. <laughs> <laughs> Agatha Christie wrote this relatively earlier in her career, decades before a lot of other classic stories. And she became convinced that this was a bad ending because it was one of her only endings where the villain 100% gets away with it. The ultimate villain mm-hmm. of the story is Leonard Volt, who oh, is yeah, almost course, a non-entity yeah. in the story. Mm-hmm. And he 100% gets away scot-free. Yeah. And she became convinced by no small amount of reader complaints that that was a mistake on her. And so when she adapted this to the stage, and this is a common with her adaptations, where she makes, like, and then there were none, Changes. book versus yeah. stage, she makes it a little bit, I wouldn't necessarily say happier, but much more, you know, fitting the Hayes Code kind of resolution at the end kind of thing. A little bit more family-friendly. Well, yes and no when it comes to the ending of this. <laughs> Okay, paint paint the scene for you. And this was again the movie adaptations have kept what she wrote for the play here. Is yeah. that we come to the trial, we have Remain break down in the stand, we have the not guilty verdict. Remain's still there, and Mayhern conf- Mayhern confronts her in the actual courtroom, mm-hmm. and he she reveals everything. Very similar to their prior conversation, she reveals that she did this as an act of love. She did this for the man that she loved, knowing full well that he's guilty, but knowing full well what she was doing, what she was doing else. A lot more into the love kind of motivation in the play. Yep. And then a character who we've seen before is a kind of a bit character, where we've even had testimony that we saw the Leonard Vole hanging out with this other young female shopkeeper, runs in and jumps around Leonard Vole's arms and gives him a big kiss, and reveals that the two of them have been having an affair, reveals that the two of them are going to run away together, that he's never cared for a man, she's old, and that he's happily used her and her plan for his own purposes here, and now he can't be prosecuted, so he can go do what he wants with his own fresh new money that he has, and just leaving her to criminal prosecution. And she grabs a knife and kills him in the courtroom, Romain. Mm-hmm. In some adaptations, even throwing the knife at the, at the judge's feet and saying, guilty, your honor. With the book essentially ending with Mr. Mahern so thoroughly kind of encapsulated with her and her story deciding that he's going to represent her now in terms of what is now going to be her murder trial going forward. <laughs> and that's how most of the you know movie play adaptations end, is they add in what is quite a few pages at the end to tell that additional story. Sarah, you look downright disturbed. Uh, yes, I was going to say, listeners, you, you cannot see Sarah like putting her head in her hands, looking uncomfortable and nervous at, at the ever-deepening explanations that we have here. This is an ins- your thoughts. This is an insane thing to do to a like perfectly encapsulated short story. Why would you do that to your own work? 
it's great on the big screen. It, it is an it's an extra twist at the end. Is it? It's a, just an, it's an, it, like it, I do not tr- it, I don't trust fun, any part of this. It, it's fun on it's it's not better, but it it's is fun better. on the big screen. It it works in a play in the big screen. It's one final additional twist and one final additional subversion, and it gives you her an opportunity to have Leonard Vole get his. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I like yeah. the just sim. I like the clean simplicity, the, sh- the utter shock, and the utter surprise given the rest of her works of a villain actually getting away with it of mm-hmm. the original short story. Yeah, I prefer. Yeah. I love that. But as BJ said, it does work in a play and a movie, and it's incredibly popular in that setting to the point that people often respond negatively to the short story when it's not there. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna have now, to experience this because it sounds terrible to me. I, I mean, of all things to complain about, Spencer, I feel like you like the closing chapters of uh, Tolkien. Because it's not a friggin' Richard. Agatha Christie mystery. <laughs> don't you, no, no, you don't get to use that. Each thing can be enjoyed for its own purposes and medium. No, I also didn't read a thousand pages of Agatha Christie to come to that moment. I'm not feeling already nostalgic from the own text I've been reading. Come on. Speaking of purposes so, and medium... Um, Spencer, I would like to know, in in light of a recent series of podcasts that you were doing with my husband, mm-hmm. if this short story were going to be written as a John Grisham novel, you, what you have the movie would be involved. I mean, but but the movie, like Witness for the Prosecution, is basically I would say a predecessor to all John Grisham. He's Maybe cr- not he's novels, but movies. All hell from that. Yes, yes, no doubt. From the adaptation, then, though, not the short story, because those yeah, are very yes. different things in the world. The, yeah, the, the adapta- witness for the pro- prosecution adaptation movie is like it's a classic. Eighty to ninety percent courtroom drama. Yes, it, okay. it is. It's the same as the play of where so much more is done in terms, in terms of the interaction of the characters, primarily in court. So much more done with the interactions of Mr. Mahern and this kind of washerwoman than the story shows up at his office to actually talk with. Yeah. Um, so that's the biggest addition. Also, just various character interactions. Like uh, Charles Laughlin, I think, is the attorney, and his wife is actually playing his secretary, and so they have a lot of fun comedic banter that's added into the movie kind of thing. That's how you would do that kind of adaptation, just because... It's already set up in the short story. All of those moments are there. They're just described offhand rather than gone into greater detail mm-hmm. about. Yeah. I think it ultimately makes for a less effectively clean result, but it makes for a movie. You couldn't do this as a movie. It'd be done in 10 minutes. <laughs> that, that'd be the funniest movie ever. And like you, you couldn't do it anymore, but you could do it back then where you bill it for like an hour and a half and 30 minutes in. Like, it just resolves and goes to black, and then it's just like, we're done. One of, the, one of the things I also don't like about the adaptations is what it, adding that additional scene, what it does to our perceptions of the main, of, I would say the main character, Romain. Mm-hmm. Of where, the thing I like about the story, and I think it's one of Agatha Christie's best female characters she's done in any of her works, is that Romain is always in control in ways that we don't even know yet. Yeah. That yeah, she is one that is playing this out from the very start. She's an, I, an utter mastery of each element of this story and each prong that it goes through. Almost from, an, almost an excessively controlling degree. She's even confronted on, we probably could have gotten him off. Mm-hmm. You didn't need to go through all this, but she needed to be certain and she needed to be in control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so adding in that last second ending is completely taking that away from her. It is completely suddenly now yeah. putting her as the victim of a story that she's always been almost effectively the predator in some ways for. Yeah. yeah. Now, she responds and aggressively and violently to that, but it's an impulsive act that's not in keeping of anything we've seen of her before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a shock value for the screen that I think takes away from a just masterstroke of an early female mystery character. Mm-hmm. An early female, in some ways, villain. Um, right. So... Yeah, and that that's sort of one of the other things that I sort of I wanted to mention, which is like the beautiful Austrian actress. Like it's fallen out as a trope, but like it's a huge trope back then. Oh yeah, and for like the next thirty years. And, and, and I, it's one of the things that's fun as a trope then because it plays. It's her, the character using the stereotype and using the perceptions of other characters to her advantage. Of where mm-hmm. they're naturally going to assume that she's treacherous. They're naturally assume that she's going to try to, you know, run an innocent guy down the river. He's going to be extra motivated for that purpose because she's the Austrian foreigner seductress. She is the, you know, um, 
I feel like the femme the Russian, fatale. The femme fatale. Yes, the the Russians sort of took over that like honey pot, like femme fatale from the enemy of each generation. Well, we, yeah, we got James yes. Bond at some point, and then we yes. just sort of ran with it. Now, uh, a, a, que- a question then. I've got a couple more minutes, but a question then is. If you guys were to change anything about the story to improve it in your mind or to alter anything to make it work in any way better, is there anything that you would change? Or is this kind of, as we just said, pure? I think I would have, you know, this goes back to, Spencer, what you were talking about with the, like, original title of the story, which was so terrible. Traitor's Hands. Um, I would have, I do, I do fundamentally think that, um, you know, our, our, kind of main character and narrator figuring out what this woman is doing simply from her hands is is a very clean ending mm-hmm. or a clean resolution it is it is not a very believable resolution yeah something else as a clue would have been helpful which is one way the adaptation has some advantages because it's the same actress mm-hmm. that's right. it's playing both mm-hmm. characters yeah, you, you have a little bit more to go on. You can you can guess it a little bit better. Yeah. There's some camera um, focus too. The so the other thing that I kind of would have liked is I think that there are too many characters, and mm. it like I I don't think you need like you need her, you need mm-hmm. the solicitor, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Would you? That, that's a key question because Leonard Vole becomes a much major character in some of the adaptations, whereas here he's mm-hmm. fairly minor. But could you have done with almost out without without him entirely? I think so, yeah. and I think that that would have tightened it up a little, like enough so, because like all, almost all of his stuff is completely extraneous. Like it's not really setting anything up. Like he could have had that conversation with her about like anyway. I, like I just I think that would have his main purpose is to speak to the audience mm-hmm. and to kind of I think fit into the same mindset of the attorney that we want to assume he's innocent. Because yeah. he just feels so in and over his head. He feels so innocent in terms yeah. of his bearing. That is right. that is like the one advantage of having those conversations between them actually in the story. Is that you do, like, I, I as a reader do get a real sense of like, well, he couldn't possibly have done this. Like, he seems so, <laughs> he seems so helpless yeah. in the world. You're but accusing also, Neville like... of being a murderer? Come on! <laughs> but also, like, his, his answers... Like, I also kind of read them as kind of flippant. Like, you know, just like that he's come up with a story a little bit. Like, oh, I don't know. I, okay. I, and and that's, that's a good second read, mm-hmm. effectively, is that on the surface, you default want to believe him. But when you analyze mm-hmm. it in deeper detail, he's got some really thin kind of explanations. Mm-hmm. And he's right. almost like playing catch up when he's realizing that some of them aren't working. And so one of the things that I kind of feel like this is is not quite as tight a story as it could be without that character is that character um of vol is kind of of a place in time whereas everything else is a little bit more timeless mm-hmm. like having that having the the austrian uh, actress like now is a bit dated because like you don't have as as much of an immediate sense that she's uh, like the other but you could easily replace that with some other other right right like she doesn't need to be Austrian mm-hmm. like you, you could take like some of those references out and then that would tighten it up and make it a, a bit more timeless mm-hmm. as opposed to it was clearly for an audience that these were touchstones for right. them yeah in, in terms of, in terms of the level of touchstone she's playing on classism or playing on class mm-hmm. differences when it comes to Vol being you know a aggressive up-and-comer, very similar to Vera in some ways from our last story, mm-hmm. where she's kind of mm-hmm. hitting on that touchstone. That doesn't work as much for us now. I feel like with that, for a truly modern adaptation, they'd probably play with a more racial angle mm-hmm. of where if he's in some ways a young black man and, and playing along that line, you could play along similar tensions and similar assumptions and similar playing with that kind of thing that are going into it. Mm-hmm. That just wouldn't have worked for that kind of audience just because they didn't have the same resonance. Yeah. But... Um... I, but as it like it's a really good short story as it is i mean i i don't know how it would have been written as a tighter story but like i think that there is some tightening that could have been done to make it you know that much more condensed well it better it needs to be under 10 pages to apparently get nominated for the agatha awards <laughs> <laughs> it is way too long for that um last question from me to compare 
can you compare it to, and then there were none in terms of overall enjoyment or overall ranking in your mind, or are they too disseparate from each other to really be reasonably compared? I mean, like, you can always compare things. I mean, like, you can compare apples and oranges. They're both sweet fruit. Like, I mean, but the entire point is that there's no point in comparing those. As, you know, as the literary mechanism, but there is point in comparing them. I mean, so, like, they were both enjoyable reads. I think that this is a little bit more not... Uh, it doesn't have as much of that classist problem that some British things have from back then um, and some other problems that that story has. Um, but they're both fun reads. I, I think that they're, they are, they're sort of almost two ends of uh, the same genre. We have what's basically a locked room mystery and what's basically a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, it seems like you quite enjoyed both in their own ways. I, I, I certainly did. Um, I'm, I'm very into both of these stories. I will say that you know, for, for me, part of the fun of a mystery, and I think this is why I'm so, so drawn to cozy mysteries as a genre, and why I was so disappointed that we didn't get any in our <laughs> foray into cozy mysteries. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. Um, but is that? the story really creates a world around the characters in which they're functioning that is itself distinct and identifiable. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about in a lot of the short stories that we read for the Agatha Awards, that is really, really difficult in a short story. And Mm -hmm. so for me, I, I love this story for what it's doing as a story. But if I'm just thinking about things that I enjoy reading, and then there were none, gets is more in that vein than the short story is simply because it has more it is a a complete world in which we are living indeed it is helped by the fact that we are on an island that's all we can get from it but in having that space to breathe as a setting is really compelling for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um in ways that like i think that um witness for the prosecution really gets at the character building that we were also missing in some of the short stories that we read. Um, right. that it is a, a deep and complex character study. But fundamentally, I always I miss the world building. It, it's fun with a, short, with a story of where I feel like I know the characters and, and witness the prosecution better than the author even told me now that I've finished. Mm-hmm. Of where so, there were descriptions of the characters, there were descriptions of some of, some, of, some of the things that they were doing. But just how they've operated in the world, I feel like I understand them better than she even spent time going into. Mm-hmm. And she didn't need to. She so thoroughly and effectively put them as part of the world that I almost can just now f- imagine what they would be doing next or what their motivations were. I've got enough tools to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, like, even with the space that And Then the Renan have, I didn't get that character development. Yeah. It was more of, like, a feeling of a place and, you know, sort of what's going on in there how the characters interacted with each other, but not really who the characters were. Yeah, that's a fair And, like, point. how they would behave outside of the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, um, a, that's a fair point. It's a really interesting point, too, um, given how much time we spent, like, specifically in the characters' heads, in, and then there were none. Mm-hmm. What, and then there were none. Their baggage was so important to the tale. That what what right. they were bringing to the island was a key part of how, where they were going. And so they're always going to have to be in some ways fixed within those boundaries. Here, mm-hmm. there's always just such a w- delightful void when it comes to the character of Romaine going in. And how much everybody else is trying to put something upon her mm-hmm. that it offers a, it invites more opportunity for imagination in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and before we end, Spencer, I have a question for you. Oh. Which is, why do you hate Miss Marple? I, 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 I don't. <laughs> you, you, you said, you, you know, this is what you, your favorite, you know, of Agatha Christie's, you know, female protagonist, and, and you sang her praises, and I just, I, like, I feel like you, you would enjoy Miss Marple, but, I, you know, I guess, you know, just, just hate in your heart. I don't understand it. I enjoy well-executed, non, non, I enjoy well-executed female villains, because there's a nasty tendency to immediately make them just a trope. Or mm-hmm. just, or, or just, yeah. or, or just a negative commentary on women for a lot of lot, lot of works of this period, and so to see a character that is just so ultimately in control of her own position and her fate, and the ultimate driving force of the story is so delightfully novel, not only for this period but really for any era. I don't, 
It yeah. is rare of when I see a character, particularly a female character, so thoroughly in command of the situation and the ultimate resolution that I yeah. appreciate that novelness. And I think it's also not overdone. I think that there there are sort of modern uh, sort of reworkings of this. Um, I want to say there was like a Sherlock Holmesian one that was recent where like his sister was like super smart and like had everything like put together and was pulling the strings and it was just like, and it was way overdone. This is like a, a believable version of that. It's not like she's superhuman. It's, you know, everything that happens is believable and she had a plan that she didn't let others into, you know, very much a, a turning the tables and, and your expectations of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in fairness, I have not read any Miss Marple, you know, story or adventure in probably 25 years. So even my memory of them is kind of fading. <laughs> so that may factor in just from a certain freshness of analysis, really. Fair enough. But BJ, we were determined... Hmm? Go ahead. Um, well... BJ, if people want to listen to other material from us. <laughs> BJ, if people are looking for a, a different take on the courtroom procedural, where might um, they go? They can go to mangumtalks.com and look at uh, Mangum Talks courtroom drama <laughs> with uh, Terry and Spencer Esquire, hmm. where there is a lawyer, fake lawyer back and forth that apparently gets very heated. Uh, probably not pistols at dawn but uh maybe terse legal letters well, there's still time at first light Me- metaphorical <laughs> pistols at dawn we're doing the firm next which you apparently didn't enjoy much so it may, there may be a bit of a blood sport over that subject <laughs> um blood sport is probably not going to be the next movie that they do after that though no um but if you have any uh questions comments or anything else uh you can Click contact us in the upper right-hand corner or go to our Facebook page or any other social media that we happen to be on. Um, At some point, I will keep myself up to date with those things. And hopefully in the near future, we will have the official Mangum Talks uh, actual podcast coming out. Um, Though, for some reason, some people need to get professional pictures done of themselves. I don't really understand it. But um, we look forward to discussing more stories in the future. And as soon as we figure that out, we will let you know what it is. I I, I could already tell you, based on on our prior discussions, uh, is that at least from what we've previously discussed, always subject to change, in a desperate Mm -hmm. effort to get Sarah at least one thing resembling a cozy mystery before we're done, we had discussed doing a Hercule Poirot, uh, specifically an appointment with death, one of her her classics of, of, of that particular amateur detective mystery genre. And I am so yes. excited. Um, maybe we'll have to get you some irises. Uh, <laughs> no, not some. Uh, some. Uh, what are they? Uh, some flowers to, to take care of. It will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. But until until then, y'all. Yeah.